Amen. Thank you, Music Ministry, for all that you do for us this morning. Good morning, Mount Hope. It's, a, it's so great to be here one more time. If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve as one of the deacons here at Mount Hope. It is a privilege to be up here this morning to share from God's Word. If you do have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And I'll be reading a few verses from that chapter. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. We read there like this, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. If you were with us last week, you had the privilege of listening to Marvin Thomas walk us so beautifully and so in-depth through the portion of Scripture where Jesus feeds the thousands of people and he multiplies five loaves and two fish and he feeds thousands of people. Maybe I should address something right from the get-go. Marvin and I are not actually related. <laughs> I understand there's a resemblance. We're not actually related, though we have been friends for a very long time. There are two people that I do share a resemblance with, though. Two people I actually share DNA with and a resemblance with, and those would be my brothers. My brothers, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and this is a picture of us taken a few weeks ago. And <laughs> the little one on the left there is actually me uh, when I was about four or five years old. And I share this resemblance with my brother, my brothers, and as I said before, I have an older brother and I have a younger brother, which would make me the? Any other middle children here today? Yes, raise your hands higher. Be proud of it. No one paid attention to us when we were little, so might as well pay attention to us now. If you are a middle child, you know that there are certain stereotypes you live with. The obvious ones, you're, you're the best looking of your siblings. You're the most intellectually superior of your siblings. Okay, those might not be true, but there is a stereotype that does exist of middle children. And what is it? That no one paid attention to us. That no one saw us, no one cared about us, our parents or siblings, no one really cared. They cared more about the older or they cared more about the younger. And we were somehow ignored in the middle of all of this. I want to share a middle child story that I have for you because it could only happen to a middle child. When I was about this age, my parents and I, as well as my brothers, we decided to go shopping one day. Does anyone remember a store called Caldor? Yes. Very good, good. You're showing your age. Cal <laughs> Caldor was a very, very popular store back in the early 80s and 90s. And Caldor actually was a store that we were going to visit that day. I remember this day so clearly, and I don't have many memories of childhood, but this one I remember so clearly because it was a true middle child moment. We drove as a family to the parking lot of this Caldor, and this is what that shopping mall looks like today. The strip mall actually looks like today, where Kohl's is right there in the picture. Caldor used to exist there. We drove to the parking lot. We were all excited to run into the store. My dad and my older brother said that they would be running into a store at the far end of the strip mall. My mom and my younger brother said that they were going to run into Caldor. Of course, as the middle child, you have to figure out where you're going next. <laughs> I saw when my dad pulled over, parked the car, my older brother jumped out of the car door and ran to the store that he was supposed to go to at the far end. Of course, now I want to keep up with my older brother. I jump out too and run into that store. Of course, being a little bit younger than him, I couldn't keep up with him. He got to the store first. I get to the store second. By the way, this is the 80s. Parents didn't really watch their kids as much back then, so. <laughs> I ran into the store after my brother. As soon as I get into the store, I realize I have no idea where my brother is. 
and now I'm lost. A middle child who's lost is a really, really terrible thing. We already think people don't pay attention to us. <laughs> I'm in that store, have no idea where my brother is, so I decide, let me run outside and maybe see if I can find my parents. I run outside, I don't see them either. Now I am scared, I am lost, and then the tears start. I start crying, and I can visually, I can I very vividly remember this, that I was crying, I was sobbing, and it was that cry where you have the pause built into the middle of it because you're really, really upset and really sad. I was walking up that strip mall aisle, crying and crying, when a woman comes up the other way and says, do you need help, is something wrong? And I nod to her and I say, I'm lost. She tells me, all right, where are your parents? And I point to Caldor and I say, my mom is in Caldor. She says, okay, I'll take you there and we'll find your mom. And out, along the way she says, is it okay if I stop in this store real quick? And I look up, <laughs> yeah. It was the 80s, believe me, it was a little different back then. I look up and she's pointing to a store and I can very vividly remember this. Caldor is C-A-L-D-O-R. She's pointing to another store. Annie Says. I'm not walking into Annie Says. First of all, that's not how you spell says. And I was remembering in my mind that this is not where I want to go. And I thought to myself, no, I need to get to my parents. And I remember telling her, no, can we go into Caldor? So she did. She took me into Caldor. And then the, the, the ridiculousness just continues as we're standing in front of the, the customer service center area. And they're asking me, son, what's your name? And I, I keep telling them, my name is Justin George Joseph. Get it out of your system. I have three first names. <laughs> I stand there before them and I tell them my name is Justin George Joseph and this woman at the customer service starts announcing over the PA system, will the parents of Justin George please come to the front? So clearly another 20 minutes of this goes by. My mom could hear someone calling for Justin George and eventually she thinks, this has to be my middle child, it can't be anyone else. And she decides to come up to the front, finds me there crying, sobbing, weeping, knowing that I was lost this entire time and the story ends well. But here's the thing though, the entire time, and the reason I remember this memory so vividly is because the entire time I was thinking one thing in my mind, does anyone see me, does anyone care, will anyone ever find me? And it was a thought that was in my mind relentlessly, over and over again I was thinking, will my parents ever find me again, will I ever be safe ever again? And this morning, we're, we read about a portion of Scripture. We read about an issue that takes place in the lives of the disciples, where the disciples are being told by Jesus to go from one place to another place. And during that time, they experience a trial and a turmoil unlike maybe anything else that they may have experienced. And they are forced to rely upon Jesus in a new and, and, a new and impactful way. And when they do, we get to see how Jesus works and how it applies to our lives today. Jesus walks on water in this portion of Scripture. But there's more than just walking on water. It says like this in that portion that we read today, and John, I think if, if you'd mind changing the slides for me. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately is the word that's used. If the word immediately appears in Scripture, we know that clearly there's something before it that we need to touch on. And what Marvin talked about last week is really what we see Jesus leading into this week, immediately after something happened. So we know that he was feeding the 5,000. He was on that hilltop. He was feeding the thousands of people, and they collected all their basketfuls of food. And then we find out in the Gospel according to John that the people all around Jesus saw the miracle that he just performed and decide we need to make this man our king, our political ruler now on this earth. We need to establish him as the Lord of our, of our community, the, the king over our people now on this earth. Jesus knowing full well that that wasn't the purpose he was sent for, knowing that this was not the mission that he was sent to earth for, he decides to immediately send his disciples into a boat, let them go off onto the sea. He's going to go up to a mountainside to pray. And it's an amazing, amazing moment when you realize that here's a moment when Jesus is probably being lavished with praise and rather than sitting there and enjoy the praise, he remembers, this is not my Father's will, I don't belong here, so I'm going to get up on a mountainside and talk to my Father. 
It's a lesson to all of us, church, that many times we will go and we will experience things in life and we'll decide that, you know what, this is good, this feels good, this sounds right, I'm going to enjoy this while I can. But meanwhile, we're sitting here watching a Lord who is willing to separate himself from that, get up onto a mountainside and talk to his Father. So many of us, we desire that prayer-answering God, that miracle-working God, the problem-solving God, but so few of us ever stop to think about the God who is willing to hear his Father's will constantly. We want the problem-solving Jesus, but we don't really address the Jesus that sits on a mountainside alone to pray, to hear his Father's will, to talk and commune with his Father. It's a lesson to us. More than the answers to problems, more than the solutions to things in our lives, can we sit on a mountainside and just ask, Lord, I want to know your will first. Even if I don't get what I want, I still want to know your will. There's a powerful thing that's happening here. It's, it's a couple of things. It's a process that the disciples are going through, a process that they're enduring in the presence of God here on this, on this sea. Jesus puts them in a boat and tells them to go. And as soon as they're out on the boat, the scripture tells us that a wind comes against them and a wind forces them from getting to the place they want to get to. They're straining at the oars. The Bible says they were making headway painfully. It was so tough to get to where they needed to get to. A wind was the first part of this process. A wind was the part that kept them from getting to where they belonged. It was a tough, tough journey ahead of them. It was only four miles, but that journey was a difficult one and it was not being made any easier because of this wind that was against them. The key part here is that Jesus put them in the boat and then the wind came. Church, understand this. Sometimes we forget that being in the center of God's will does not mean life is perfect. Being right where God puts us does not necessarily mean everything will be easy. It might feel good. It might make you think it's, that's what's supposed to happen, that if I'm in the will of God, everything will be easy. But when we see what happens in Scripture, when Jesus put his disciples in a place where they needed to be, immediately they faced adversity. And it's no different for us today. You might think that I'm in God's will. I know I'm in God's will. I'm where God needs me to be. But every time you turn around, there's more adversity, more problems, more issues, more circumstances that you did not expect. But look what happens to the disciples. Jesus puts them in a boat, and immediately there's a wind that comes against them. It's a reminder to us that God expects us to rely more on him when we are in his will. The scripture says like this, his strength is made perfect in what? Our weakness, his strength is made perfect. His strength is not made perfect when I'm strong. His strength is made perfect when I'm weak. And Jesus is reminding his disciples, yes, you are in my will. You are in the boat that I put you in. But unless you realize that I am the one that will lead you to the other shore, you will always, always, always be the weaker one who, re who requires my strength. This is one of the most important things that I think the church needs to understand, that I need to understand. That grace comes in different ways. Grace could be a forgiveness. Grace could be getting something you do not deserve. But grace could also come when God puts me where I did not choose to go so that he could produce in me what I could not achieve on my own. Let me say that again. Sometimes grace is where God puts me where I did not choose to go so that he can produce in me things that I could not achieve on my own. And that's what he's doing with the disciples. He's putting them in a place where they probably did not want to be. The Bible says like this, that Jesus compels them. He forces them to get into a boat to go out to the sea. He forces them. They didn't want to go. These are expert fishermen. They don't want to go out into a sea in the middle of the night when the wind is against them, when the waves may be choppy. They know better than that. But Jesus says, trust me and get into that boat. I'll take care of the rest. Grace is oftentimes where God puts me where I did not want to go so that he can produce in me something I could not achieve on my own. And that's the kind of grace that the disciples get that day. The wind comes against them. The wind is against them. We will face adversity in this life. So many of you sitting here right now are testimony to that. We will face adversity. We will face difficulties. We will face problems, persecution, trials, tribulations, sicknesses. We will face all of them in this life. But in this moment, Jesus is asking his disciples, can you still trust me? Can you still trust me. 
the wind was against them. Look at it from Jesus' perspective. He's up on a mountaintop praying, and he can see his disciples straining at the oars. They are not getting to where they want to get to. Jesus is watching the entire process as it unfolds. Doesn't he know who's in the boat? Twelve men. Eleven of them will be the future of his church on this earth. He knows who's in the boat. He understands what they're going through. He knows that if this boat capsizes in the middle of this sea, everything is for naught. The church, the early church, probably doesn't happen the way it does unless Jesus is in control. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on in your boat, in your home, in your living room, in your dining room, in your kitchen, where in your car, the conversations that take place, the issues that happen between your family members. He knows. He sees them. He's not that far away. He's right there watching, waiting for the right time to intervene in that situation. So many of us face adversity and we constantly ask this question, Is Jesus absent in the middle of all this? Is he just completely up on a mountainside doing his thing while I'm in this boat struggling? And in a few minutes, you're about to see what Jesus is actually doing, what Jesus is actually thinking throughout this entire process. He knows that adversity will be a part of the lives of those 11 of those 12 men that are in that boat right now. In fact, think about it this way. The future of those 11, uh, uh, future of those 12 men, we know what ends up happening to them. One obviously betrays Jesus. The other 11, what happens to them in the future? The Bible doesn't always record every part of it, but we know through history what happens to them. Do you know six of them are crucified? Two of them are beheaded. One of them was chopped to death by an axe. One of them is burned alive and cooked in an oven before he's dead. All 11 of the others were were beaten, tortured, humiliated. One was even skinned alive. Jesus knows who's in the boat. He knows what these men need to go through one day down the road, so he's building up within them their trust of God now so that one day they can use it. These men would change the world. These men would transform the entire known world with a gospel that most people had never heard before. Jesus knew what was to come, so he decides to build in them today what they need for down the road. The adversity you face today, church, is not a mistake. It's not by chance. God knows who's in that boat right now with you. He knows what needs to take place in your life today so that you can serve him better tomorrow. This is what Christ is doing in his church. He knows these men will face persecution and trials way stronger than a wind that comes against them. But he needs them to trust them in the wind so that he can trust them when they're about to be executed. That's the thing that God is doing in these men. He is building in them something that they could not build on their own unless they experience difficult grace at a time like this. Jesus is doing something so miraculous in their lives. That wind comes against them. That wind keeps facing them. That wind keeps hitting them. And he expects them to keep on going. There's a verse, like, there's a man that I want to introduce you to tonight. Today, does anyone know who this person is? Very good, very good. This gentleman is named William Carey. And if you haven't heard of William Carey before, let me introduce you to William Carey today because I think his life will help explain so much of what we're hearing today. William Carey... And the reason I chose him of so many thousands of mighty missionaries that existed in the world, the reason I stand up here today is indirectly in many ways because of this man. And let me tell you why. William Carey lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He lived in England. He only had education up till the age of 12. He couldn't afford to go to school beyond the age of 12. William Carey decided that I'll go work as a cobbler's apprentice and I will continue to learn whatever I can along the way. William Carey realized at an early age that he had an incredible ability to understand foreign languages. He could understand them, pick them up, and quickly translate them if necessary. But he was only educated until the age of 12. The wind is against his life. So William Carey decides that, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way to become a missionary, to serve God. I have a burden for lost souls in other parts of the world. I'm going to figure out a way to do that. 
He decides to get ordained in his local church to become a preacher. The the local church required that he deliver one sermon so that he can be seen as a person worthy of ordination. William Carey gets up to deliver that sermon. That day, he's rejected for ordination because the sermon was that poor. Again, the wind against him in his life. Somehow, over seven years, people ignore his pleas to go to other parts of the world. William Carey has a heart for the nation of India and decides, I need to get to India. I need to take some people with me, take a team and go over there and see what God needs me to do over there. For seven years, people completely ignore him because this man is not really worth paying attention to. He didn't even pass his ordination sermon. He is not worth paying attention to. For seven years, they ignore him. Finally, he gets the money, he he makes the money, and he makes the team, puts them together, and he decides that he's going to travel to India. Along with one doctor, the team consisted of his wife and his children. Along the way, they experience terrible hardships as they go around the Horn of Africa and get to East India. They land in East India, and if you ever have a chance to read a terrific biography, read the biography about William Carey. And watch what this man experienced. It's a man who left the comforts of England to travel to eastern India. It talks about the times that he lived in in certain parts where Bengal tigers would be roaming while he slept at night on the floor. So he would go up and sleep in trees so the tigers wouldn't get to him. The amazing hardships and the wind against this man's life day after day after day. But that's not the worst things that happened to William Carey. His, his story goes on to say that he doesn't lose one, not two, but three children he loses in India to sickness and diseases. Three children he has to bury in that nation. His wife, seeing all of this going on around them and having to live as a, a poor, poor person in India, she realizes suddenly that I can't deal with this anymore. And progressively, her sanity starts to leave her. She has a complete mental breakdown. So now William Carey, without his children and his wife, who he has to care for consistently all the time, has to now somehow continue this ministry. So he lands in India. Does he suddenly make a million converts and change the nation of India? No. The wind is still against him in his life. William Carey experiences more tragedy in his life, more sickness in his life. Day after day, they experience malaria, cholera. They suffer every single day, but they keep on going. William Carey starts to translate, to learn the languages of the local people and starts to translate their words and starts to create dictionaries for their words. Once he's created a dictionary, he decides to start working on translating the Bible at some point. William Carey works relentlessly, relentlessly to spread the gospel in India, but nothing really happens. You know, he works for seven years, and how many converts does he have to show for it? One. After seven hard years of losing his family, losing his wife's sanity, laboring every single day, he has one convert to show for everything. Wind against his life. There was official wind against his life. The British East India Company, which owned most of that area commerce-wise, was refusing to allow missionaries to work there, so he had to get another job. They were against him. The wind was against him. As I said before, sickness, disease constantly against him. But here's my favorite part of this story. And it's terrible. William Carey sits down and he decides to translate the entire Bible into one of the Indian languages. He writes it out, he typesets it, puts it all together in this one-room shack that he's working in. He types out this entire copy of the Bible, and within a week, a fire takes over that entire shack and burns down everything in that shack. Wind against his life. Adversity against his life. Everywhere he turns, things are against him. But this man keeps going. He knows that his Lord is building something in him for down the road. And he keeps on going. I read a great version of what happens to William Carey. I'm going to read it directly from it. All for what? Was it worth it? Beyond a doubt. Carey formed a team of colleagues known as the Serampore Trio whose accomplishments elevated them to first magnitude in all missions history. Carey's team went on to translate the Bible into 34 Asian languages. He compiled dictionaries of Sanskrit, Marathi, Punjabi, and Telugu, respected even today as authoritative. 
He started the still influential Serampore College. He began churches and established 19 mission stations. He formed 100 rural schools, encouraging the education of girls. He printed the first Indian newspaper. He introduced the concept of the savings bank to assist poor farmers. His fight against the burning of widows helped lead to its ban in 1829. Here's the best part. His life and his death inspired tens of thousands to give themselves for the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. One man who faced wind and adversity constantly, who kept pushing forward knowing that his God has something better for him down the road. And he trusted God, he pushed forward, he pushed forward, he pushed forward, and the fact that I, as an Indian man, stand up here before you is in many ways due to his sacrifice because he decided to translate the version of the Bible that my great-grandfather would one day read, he decided to do that. Because of that, I stand up here today. Do you see what happens when we face adversity, when we face wind, and we keep on going? Jesus is saying, I have something better for you down the road. I have something better for you down the road because your life is my responsibility. When you are in the place of obedience, when you are in my will and you are in my will wholly, you will face adversity. But when you are in my will, you are my responsibility. I have you in the palm of my hand. I will not let anything, I will not let anything touch you that I do not know about. Because he is on a mountaintop watching. The wind may face us. The wind may come against us. But do not forget for a moment, church, that Jesus is watching us. That he sees us. That he loves us. That he knows us. But the thing that makes this chapter even more puzzling and peculiar to me, especially when I read it over and over again, is is very simple. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And I'm sure you've heard sermons before about Jesus walking on water. That's an incredible, incredible moment that we'll get to in just a few minutes. But the far more important thing here is that in the fourth watch of the night, he came out to them in the sea. Let's add a little context to that that phrase. In ancient time, the nights were kept by four different watches. The first watch would be from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., The second watch of the night was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch of the night was from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch of the night was from 3 a.m. to sunup or 6 a.m. Jesus puts them in a boat sometime in the evening. Jesus goes up to pray sometime in the evening. Jesus watches them straining at the oars sometime in the evening. But when does he actually go out to them? In the fourth watch of the night. In the morning, he goes out to them. Church, there's something that we have to realize here. Even when the wind comes against us, that may not be the end of your adversity. There's sometimes a weight that comes after the wind. And the second part of the process that the disciples had to go through was the wind and then the weight. How many of you have been in this boat before? That you ask the Lord for something, you plead to God, give me an answer to this prayer that I pray before you every single day. Give me a response, Lord. Show me a sign. Give me something to let me know that you are still there. And what, and what do you hear at the end of it is nothing but silence. Nothing comes as a result of it. Hour after hour after painful hour, these men are straining at the oars, and I am sure in their minds they are thinking, where is this Lord that just fed 5,000? Where is this God that put us into this boat? How come he doesn't just say the word and calm the storm? Why doesn't he answer me when I expect him to answer me? Where is he when I need him? And oftentimes, more than the wind is the weight that makes it tough for us to be Christians. Isn't that right? that it's sometimes harder to wait on the Lord to get his answer. One of the toughest parts of faith is this, that we believe in a prayer answering God, but then we have to wait for him to answer at his time. It's one of the toughest things about faith, that we know he's there, we know that he has all the power that he needs, but then we have to wait for his time. I think one of the toughest things for me has always been, God, please do things on my schedule. Please do things when I need them done. Please give me the answer to this as I expect it to be done. Meanwhile, I refuse to trust him and wait for him. And as a result, there are so many things I think I've missed out on. 
because I wanted it right now. And when I didn't get it right now, I decided to do it my way. I'll figure it out some other way. When all along the Lord was saying, if you could just hold on a little bit longer, you would see what I'm doing in your life. If you could just wait a little bit longer, you would see the full progression that's coming. You see, the thing about the Lord, and we read it in the Bible, that he's the Alpha and the That means he knows the beginning and the end. He knows the end of the story. He knows the end of my story, and he is trying to unfold that story. But all along the way, I'm constantly saying, God, yeah, you're good, you're sovereign, you're in control, but I think I want to take care of it my way today. One of the biggest challenges we face is learning how to wait, learning how to say, God, please work on your schedule instead of my schedule. Look throughout the New Testament. Look throughout the way Jesus works. How many times people have to wait for him to respond, but as a result, what happens? If you study the Gospel of John chapter 11, you hear the great, the great retelling of the death of Lazarus. And we always marvel at the end of the story because we know the end, that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But there's a verse in John chapter 11 that should stand out above and beyond all other verses. It says there like this, John 11 verse 5, Though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's odd, isn't it? That Jesus, who has the ability to heal from a distance, heal with just his word, decided to wait two more days before giving an answer to Lazarus and his sisters. What does it show us? Jesus knew full well that he has the power to give life back to a dead person. Those people standing there may not have known that. But Jesus is saying, trust me a little bit longer, even if it's two more days. Trust me for two more days, and you will see the glory of God in a way you never saw it before. Church, this is a message for all of us this morning. Trust God a little bit longer in what you are facing. You may be facing wind like never before. You may be be forced to wait like never before. But the message to the church this morning, keep on waiting. Keep on waiting, keep on trusting, because God has something special in store for his children. Keep on waiting, keep on watching, because something is about to happen. The wait is sometimes the hardest thing. There's there's a man born blind in the New Testament, and and the, the, the Pharisees question him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of the sin of his father and his mother or something else? And Jesus responds that he was blind for my glory, that there was a purpose in his blindness. He may have had to wait his entire life, but the glory is going to be revealed in his life. One day the disciples are fishing and they fish all night and they catch nothing. And here comes Jesus in the morning, gets into Simon Peter's boat and he says, cast your net on this side. And he hauls up a load of fish that he's never seen before. We see that Jesus sometimes makes us wait, but the result at the end is so much greater than any result we could have ever imagined. There's a woman with an issue of blood that she is coming up to Jesus and grabbing the hem of his garment. The Bible teaches us that she had this sickness, this problem for 12 years. She struggled with this. For 12 years, the God who loved her allowed her to struggle with it. But this woman who in her desperation crawls to Jesus, touches the hem of his garment, receives her healing, and God is saying, I knew you could wait a little bit longer. Sometimes we think, I'm at my wit's end. I have no more resource left. I have no way of going forward. And the Lord is telling us, I know you. I created you. I'm expecting you to wait a little bit longer. Because the answer you get when you wait will be so much greater than any answer I could give you right now. Church, we are called to wait. Strength will rise as we what? Wait upon the Lord. The Bible says like this, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It all comes back to waiting upon the Lord. Psalm 27 says like this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage. Yea, I say again, wait for the Lord. Wait upon him. Wait upon him. Even if it's the second watch of the night, keep waiting because that fourth watch is coming. If it's the third watch of the night, keep Keep waiting because the fourth watch is just around the corner. Jesus will walk on water for your problem. And that's what he's saying. I will do anything to help my children, but all it takes, trust me, and in the right time, I will do it. 
Jesus is saying that I will defy the laws of physics and gravity if that's what it takes to take care of my children. What is it that you and I face today? And what is more impossible than what God could do? Jesus gets off that mountaintop and he walks on water to get to his disciples. He shows them that nothing can stop me, nothing can get in the way of the miracle that I've prepared for you. All you need to do is trust and wait. And it's coming. Sometimes he's not on our time, but he's always right on time. And I can say that's been the story of my life has been always this, that I expected God to do certain things, certain ways at certain times, and he just amazes me by doing it other times in other ways and other fashions and blows my mind every time. Church, this is what you and I are called to do. Wait on the Lord and he will answer. It's one thing that Jesus is teaching his disciples If you look at verse 52, it says there, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They were amazed because they did not understand about what just had taken place. They did not understand, and as a result, Jesus needed to show them what was taking place. And here's the answer that he's giving them, a very simple answer. My disciples in the boat understand this. You may be facing wind, you may be facing a weight, but I am sovereign. I am in control. I know what's going on. Church, that is the response to you today. When the diagnosis isn't what you expected it to be, God is still sovereign. When your children are rebelling or they're going in a way that you never expected, God is still sovereign. When the bank account is empty and you just don't know how to make ends meet, God is still sovereign. When it becomes too difficult to face today and even think about tomorrow, God is still sovereign. He is in control, and that's what he's showing his disciples. That your boat may be rocking back and forth, but when I walk on this water, that wind will not touch me. That's a lesson to you, church. It's a lesson to all of us. That even if the wind is rocking the boat that you're in, the wind does not affect the Lord who invented the wind. It does not touch him. It does not affect him. So the process continues. There's a wind, there's a weight, but thank God that there's also a watcher. It says here like this in verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw the disciples straining at the oars. When David writes Psalm 23, he writes like this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Think about that powerful, powerful imagery there, that even if I go through the worst hell of my life, I have nothing to fear because the one who created me is with me. There may be wind and there may be a weight in your life, but thank God there's also a watcher up on the hill watching us, studying us, seeing what we're going through. And it's so amazing to me is that he wasn't just Jesus watching us through our struggle. He was Jesus who came down off that mountain and he walked on the water and he met me in the middle of my struggle. Think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to just say, hey, wind, stop it, I'm about to walk on the water. No, he does not calm the wind first and then walk on water. He walks on water, then calms the wind. He walks up to his disciples. He approaches them in the boat. He lets them know that he is there. And then he has the wind calm down afterwards. He is the Lord who walks with me in the midst of my struggle. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me in the valley of the shadow of death. And that's the only reason. Because he is with me. And this is part of the greatest love story that's ever been told. That he sought me out from that mountain and he came down in the midst of my sin and my trouble. He sought me out and he makes himself available to me. He makes himself the Lord who's in the midst of my struggle. That is the greatest, greatest joy that we have. This greatest love story that's ever been told. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I will do anything to get to you. I will defy the laws of physics and gravity. I will walk on the water to get to you because I need you to understand about the loaves, that I am sovereign over everything. I am sovereign over food. I am sovereign over people. I am sovereign over this earth. I am sovereign over this wind. I am sovereign over your fear. I am sovereign over everything in your life. I am even sovereign over the storm that you're going through right now. And by saying this, by doing what he does, Jesus is displaying to them, trust me in the midst of anything. 
trust me because I am sovereign. You see, the, the whole point of everything Jesus does in this, in this one section of scripture, everything he does comes down to this, that they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. He knew who was in the boat, and he decided to take a step. He knew that they did not understand about the loaves, so Jesus declares, let me show them who I am because they still don't get it. It is a, such a deep theological message in the middle of this chapter that we often overlook. It says there like this, but when they saw him, in verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said. In fact, right before it, it says he meant to pass by them. It's one, one of those verses that gets very confusing. So what was Jesus trying to do? Was he just trying to pass them and get to the other side? The deep theological meaning behind this goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are certain parts of Scripture where Jesus actually, where God actually says that he's going to pass by his people. There's a very, very few select moments where he's going to pass by them. In the book of Exodus, Moses wants to see the glory of God. And God says to Moses like this in the book of Exodus, he says, I am going to cause my glory to pass by you. In the book of Kings, Elijah knows that he needs to see God's glory at one point, And God says, I will pass by you. It's that very same phrase that's used in this portion of scripture where Jesus is saying, I am going to pass by you with my glory. You will know that I am God through what you're about to see right now. You will know that I am God sovereign over everything through what's about to take place now because you didn't get it with the loaves, but you're about to get it with what I'm about to do now. God is showing his sovereignty to his people. It's amazing what he says too. It says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, be of courage, do not be afraid. But the most important phrase is the one right in the middle there. Take heart, why? It is I. It is I. Let me translate that a different way in Greek. In Greek, the, word, the phrase is ego eimi. It means, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. If any of you have any reference of what that reference means. When God calls himself I am, what is he doing? He's saying the same God who appeared before you in Israel, the same God who took care of you in all of your needs in the Old Testament, straight through the New Testament, that's me. I'm here right now. And if I could do all of that then, imagine what I could do for you right now. He is saying, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. I am that I am was the phrase that God used when Moses asked him, what shall I tell them is your name? God responds, I am that I am. Jesus uses the same phrase here and says, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. I am that I am, meaning I am God. I am Lord over the sea, Lord over your lives, Lord over the bread, Lord over the fish. I am Lord over everything. You have nothing to be afraid of. I've proven myself in the past, and I'll do it again now. Church, how many of us have experienced that kind of grace from God, that kind of a response from God in the past, that answer from God in the past, and God is saying, if I could do it before, why can't I do it now? Wait on me, watch and wait on me, trust me, I'm about to do something you have never seen before in your life. That waiting and that watching can be sometimes the hardest thing, and that constant wondering, is God doing anything in the midst of this struggle? A gentleman by the name of Joseph Scriven was alive about two centuries ago. Joseph Scriven was a man just like any other who had a very normal life. He, had, he got engaged to the love of his life early. They had set their wedding date and they were planning everything and everything was going to beautifully take place. The night before their wedding, his fiancée tragically dies in an accident. He is heartbroken. He's crushed that this love of his life would be taken and how could God do such a terrible thing to him and he starts to question everything in his life. Somehow, Joseph takes up the pieces of his life and moves to Canada, and he decides, I'm going to start my life anew. He lives his life, and as he's living his life, he meets another woman, and they fall in love, and he's set to be married to this woman too. She tragically dies before their wedding. Twice in his life, he experienced wind that no person would ever want to experience. Twice in his life, he's crushed, he's devastated, depression takes a hold of him, he is beaten, he is down, he does not know how to face the next day. 
The one person he had in his life as a support system was his mother. And his mother was back in England. He would write to her regularly, and she would write words of support and courage to him. One day he gets a letter from his mother saying, Son, I am sick. I don't know how much longer I have left on this earth. Joseph Scriven, who's experienced tragedy twice, decides, This is it. I've had enough. If my mother is gone, I have nothing left in this earth. And he gets down into that place where he's feeling sorry for himself and he wonders, God, what was your purpose in all of this? And so Joseph Scriven takes out a piece of paper to write back to his mom. But as he's writing, as he's sitting in prayer, he decides to write a poem to her. And he wonders and he's questioning about, God, what was the purpose of all this suffering, all this tragedy in his life? And after all of his experiences, he writes this poem down on a piece of paper, mails it to his mother, this was almost 200 years ago, mails that poem to his mother. Do you know we sang that poem in church today? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged take everything to God in prayer. A man who had experienced that kind of tragedy in his life, he takes a pen, puts it to paper, and writes a song that billions of people would sing for the next 200 years. Because God takes our tragedy, God takes our, diver our adversity, God takes every problem and issue we face, and he finds a way to turn it into something beautiful down the road. Because our God works in a way where he sometimes lets us experience a little bit of trial, a little bit of trouble, a little bit of temptation, because he knows what it produces at the end of the day. And that's why he lets us go. Sometimes we don't get the answer till the fourth watch of the night, church. It's true, we don't. But the answerer is still working. The answerer is still on the throne, and for that, I'm grateful. For that, we have nothing else to say, but thank you, God, that you are still alive, working on my behalf. Eight times in the scripture, Jesus says, take courage, do not be afraid. Eight times. And every single time, he is finding people who are at the end of their rope, who are thinking, there is no other way I can move forward. And he says to them, take courage, do not be afraid. And today, that message could be for someone sitting in this, in this room right now. Take courage, it is him. The I am is working. Do not be afraid. He is sovereign over every moment of your life. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over every moment when you wake up, when you go to sleep, everything that happens in between. While you are sleeping, he is still sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, it means simply this, he is in control. He is in control. Nothing is outside of his control. He knows what's going on. He knows what you need, and he's ready to meet you in the point of that need. He is always in control. Even when he hung on a cross for my sins and yours, he was still in control. Nothing could take that control away from him. I was recently reading about a physician's perspective on what the crucifixion actually was. And it's incredible to read, I won't go into all the details, but what a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier would have done to Jesus the day he was crucified. Do you know that they would drop him down onto two beams, or a typical Roman, Roman prisoner would be dropped down onto two beams of wood. They would grab his wrist, and they would stretch out his wrist or his hand, and they would find a place where there would be a hole, and they would drive a nine-inch wrought iron nail through that hole. Wrought iron, it's about three inches thick. They would drive it through his, through his wrist or through his hand. They would purposely leave a little bit of slack in his elbow, so that he could stretch up and down during the time of his crucifixion to catch his breath. Do you see, crucifixion was not just bleeding a person to death, it was suffocating them to death. Their ribs were so pressed down against their lungs that it's hard to exhale. You can inhale, but very, very difficult to exhale. The brutal, brutal torture that Jesus went through for you and I while he's up on that cross, agonizing pain that he went up up and down, gasping for breath, cramping throughout his body as his body's in this awkward position, cramping, agonizing pain. In fact, do you know that there is no phrase to describe that type of pain except the phrase excruciating, which literally means in Latin, excruciatus, which means out of the cross. 
That's the kind of pain that Jesus experienced for you and I. He went through all of this for what? William Carey went through all of that for what? Because Jesus Christ knew very well that even though I may be nailed to a cross right now, I will rise again on the third day because I am still in control. No one could wrestle that control away from him. Sickness, death, the grave, nothing can take that control away from him because he is sovereign and no one has the authority or the power over him. And this is the message to the church this morning that you may be going through the the worst of the worst times in your life right now. Everything, everything seems to be against you. But even on the cross, he was sovereign. Even in the grave, he was sovereign. Even now at the right hand of the Father, he is still sovereign. He is on the throne and nothing will take him from that throne. The Bible says like this when Paul says, what can separate me from the love of Christ? What can separate me? And we think about this, that Jesus was willing to do all of this for for us. But who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Why can Paul say this? Because Paul knows that even though I feel a separation sometimes, I am never separated from him. He was willing to die for me. We are eternally bonded because of that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, church. You might think this verse is about you, that you can do all these things to get close to God, but no, this verse is about a Lord who is willing to do anything to get to you. Walk on water, no problem. I'll do it because I want to get to my child. Whatever it is that you're going through today, whatever trouble or or trial you're experiencing today, know this, that you serve a God who is willing to defy the laws of gravity and physics to get to you. He is telling you something simple. There is nothing I would not do to answer you. All I ask of you is when you face the wind, and if you have to wait, trust me in the middle of this. I'm going to ask the music ministry to come forward one more time. Let's all close our eyes and bow our heads in the presence of God this morning. Some of us may be going through situations in life right now where we're wondering, God, where are you? Are you absent in the middle of my struggle right now? And here is the Lord responding to you very clearly and very powerfully that I was in control from the beginning of time before you were ever even created. I was in control. And if no one could take that control from me, then who is still in control today? But that decision is up to you who you want to make in control of your life. God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. And his question to you, will you trust me in the middle of the storm? A Lord who is willing to walk on water for you. The great I am who is willing to say, take courage, do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day thanking you for your blessings and your mercies that we never deserve for grace that puts us in a place where we did not want to go so that you could produce in us something we could not achieve on our own. And we thank you for what you have taught us this morning, that though we face wind and though we face a weight, that the watcher is still on the hill giving his eye to us. And we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your presence. And I pray that you would meet the needs of those who are tired of the wait, who are tired of waiting. Give us not the answer right now, but give us the courage to wait a little bit longer. Because we trust you, Lord. We trust you, Lord. We believe that you have an answer in the right time for my life. I thank you, Lord, for hearing us this day. And I thank you, Lord, because you are sovereign over everything in our lives. Sovereign over every problem. Sovereign all the good times. Sovereign over all the bad times. You are sovereign and we trust you. We give our lives to you and we give you thanks. Meet us now as we worship together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we rise to our feet? And I will fear no evil.